This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. Ronald Wyatt, Vice President and Patient Safety Officer at MCIC Vermont, a risk retention group where he leads multiple patient safety initiatives for several leading academic health systems. He's an internationally known equity, safety, and quality improvement and implementation expert. Dr. Wyatt was the first co-chair of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, their equity advisory group. He's on the faculty for the IHI Pursuing Equity Initiative. After serving as the medical director for the U.S. Defense Health Agency and Military Health System and Patient Safety Analysis Center, he became the first medical director of the Joint Commission. He's someone that has written books and chapters on patient safety systems and has contributed to research on Sentinel event alerts. And and, uh, he's been a technical advisor for many organizations and has helped develop guides to completing a root cause analysis for adverse events to improve patient safety. He's uh, on the board for the Society to Prevent Diagnostic Error. I could go on and on and on, but this was a conversation that I'm so honored to be able to share with you all, our listeners. And in this episode, you're going to hear about the impact of diagnostic errors on health equity. I mean, for patients of color, the unequal medical care and quality of the diagnosis received isn't due to just location, education, or income. It's also due to healthcare professionals' cognitive biases, along with decades of clinical studies that examined only white male bodies and the lack of understanding about the social determinants of biological illness. And to better understand this issue, I mean, every healthcare professional should listen to Dr. Ron Wyatt, one of the most renowned patient safety experts and health equity champions in this country. So the work of Dr. Wyatt is going to help us win this race to value. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you hear, please go to Apple Podcasts. We'd love a five-star review and definitely subscribe to our newsletter to keep apprised of a future episode. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Ron Wyatt as he joins us this week in the race to value. Ron, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so awesome to have you on the show this week. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. Well, Ron, I'd like to begin our conversation today by talking about the human cost and financial impact of misdiagnosis. The National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine defines diagnostic error as the failure to establish an accurate and timely explanation 
of the patient's health problem or communicate that explanation to the patient. And medical misdiagnosis in the form of inaccurate, late, and delayed diagnoses is an ongoing problem in the U.S. Not only do these diagnostic errors present an ongoing risk to the health and safety of patients, but they also cost the economy billions of dollars. In more specific terms, diagnostic errors cost the U.S. economy around $750 billion per year, but it's even more tragic to look at the immense loss of human life. I mean, patient deaths to a diagnostic error are estimated to be forty to 80,000 people a year, They're about the same number of people that die annually from breast cancer or diabetes, and that means every nine minutes – Someone in a U.S. hospital dies from a diagnosis that's wrong or delayed, and during our podcast discussion today, upwards of six to seven people will die from a diagnostic error that was avoidable. And I'm so thankful to have you on the podcast this week because this is an issue that for far too long has not received the attention it urgently needs, and you're a healthcare leader that's internationally known as a patient safety expert working to improve the accuracy and timeliness of diagnosis to improve patient safety and health equity. So Ron, can you provide our listeners with a perspective on why improving diagnosis and medicine is so important and how it aligns with the overall movement to value-based care? Yeah, so, so thank you for that. And, and, and a really good question that gets to the core of the issue from you know, my perspective, and I frame it as a patient safety and quality issue primarily. And we'll talk about later how it also the data supports that diagnostic error is also a health inequity. We'll talk about that later. But we think then about quality first. To make the right diagnosis in a timely manner is a core quality component. So, so if we think of quality then as we are doing everything we can, not to just to meet the expectations of people, but to exceed them. So, so how can you provide quality care if you're not meeting or exceeding the needs of the population that you're serving? Inside of that, and we, we have to say that is inextricably linked to quality patient safety, which means do not harm me, that anyone who comes into healthcare should not be harmed in the process. So if we think about then patient safety as a link to quality, then uh, diagnostic error, misdiagnosis, delays in diagnosis, and overdiagnosis plus underdiagnosis do harm in the process of care. And that's where the cost comes in. If you think uh, again about an overdiagnosis and the, the diagnostic tests and all of the process that take place in an overdiagnosis for multiple reasons, then that also becomes a cost related issue. So all of this begins to fit together uh, as quality and safety issues that cost the population. It costs us in real dollars. It costs us an emotional and, and psychological harm that we do, and it is preventable. So when we think then about this as a patient safety issue, what we're trying to do is get at zero preventable harm, zero preventable injury, and zero preventable death. So it all rolls up then if we think about diagnostic errors uh, as a true quality and safety issue. Ron, it seems that if we're to address this issue of diagnostic error to improve overall patient safety, the industry needs to prioritize a culture that values open lines of communication, teamwork, and patient engagement. I mean, it's undeniable that communication and teamwork skills are essential for providing quality healthcare and interdisciplinary team-based care 
is the foundation of patient-centered value-based models of care delivery. And when all clinical and non-clinical staff collaborate effectively, the healthcare teams can improve patient outcomes, prevent medical errors, improve efficiency, increase patient satisfaction. I mean, it's almost like the same principle that rules the sporting arenas and playgrounds across the world can ostensibly reduce the number of diagnostic errors in the healthcare setting. Yet we have this cultural problem in healthcare. I mean, the practice of medicine has traditionally been a, a lonely and risky competition. You know, doctors are used to calling the odds and making diagnoses without input from other members of the team. And there's this authority gradient where nurses and physician assistants are taught not to question them. And if a physician makes a mistake, there's a culture of blame, shame, and fear of, of litigiousness, which makes it unlikely that individuals will speak up or report a diagnostic error. So can you expound on this concept of teamwork and patient safety and why it's so difficult to reach an optimal state of multi-stakeholder collaboration? And how should stakeholders go about challenging the cultural norms to combat diagnostic errors? And how can nurses and advanced practice providers and other non-physicians become more empowered to speak up without fear of reprisal? So yeah, and let, let me be real provocative at the outset and not bury my lead on this. I'll start and finish with it. Everything that you said has a common denominator in my mind. And that common denominator is leadership. And let me go into what I mean by that. When I was, I was first patient safety officer at the Joint Commission. During that time, I was able to look at five years of data around sentinel events. And sentinel events either cause death, permanent harm, or severe temporary harm. When I looked at those for five years, the leading causes of sentinel events reported through the Joint Commission, and as you know, it credits over 25,000 healthcare organizations in, in the country deemed as a accreditation organization by CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. When I looked at that data, the number one root cause was leadership failure. The number two root cause was failures in communication. The number three root cause were failures in teamwork. The number four root cause was a lack of appreciation for human factors. And we can talk about each one of those. So what that led me to do then is advocate to the, the Joint Commission Board to say, we need to let people know what is happening. We need to partner to your point with people and populations and communities and leadership. And I suggested to the Joint Commission that we write a patient safety chapter. And then I went further to say, this chapter needs to then go into the public domain. And, and the Joint Commission Board and a series of, of technical experts agreed the patient safety systems chapter from the Joint Commission went public in, I think, 2015. First time ever that, that we were able to put that chapter out there. What we did, if you look at that chapter, and I, I, I recommend it as required reading, we talk about first what I just mentioned about the link between safety and quality. Next, we said, let's focus this on leadership and what leadership needs to understand about patient safety, quality, and, and let's go back to diagnostic error. So the, we started with leadership and we said, here are the behaviors that we believe uh, are required for leadership. One is that leadership model certain professional behaviors. Second, that leadership begins to address something you talked about, begin to address 
unprofessional behavior in a healthcare system. Not the blame and shame, but to go a different route and say, was whatever it might be, which includes one of the top, just in the data just came out, one of the top settling events of the Joint Commission, delays in diagnosis, holding people accountable, no matter who they are in the organization. It could be a chair, a dean, it could be the leading surgeon on the East Coast or West Coast. It should not matter. Was the event, safety event, the result of something that is blame-free or blame-worthy, what some call now little J just culture. So we said we need to first have leadership hold clinicians accountable. Part of that then becomes, are you as a leader communicating the aim of zero harm, preventable harm in your system? Are you debriefing your system to understand what is happening? Are you reaching out in your system uh, in, a, in a way that you begin to apply systems thinking, which means as a leader, do you go after the known knowns or do you go after the unknown unknowns? Which we will say leaders need to go to the unknown unknowns. And I describe that because in healthcare, we tend to use the iceberg model. And, and I say to leaders, you need to go in the deep, dark, cold water, down, down deep and dark where no one else goes. That's where the unknown unknowns are. And address those as opposed to stand up on the surface where you see just the, the, the top of the iceberg, those are the known knowns. You need to go down there and understand how the systems are working, how you, who and where and how you're putting people in environments that lead to delays in diagnosis and other forms of harm. Are you messaging safety continuously throughout the organization? Are you then working to build two, two or three things? One is, do you have a reporting culture? That means a leader saying to the system, if you see something that's putting people at risk, including the workforce, say something about it. And when you report it, we want to build a reporting culture. What you report then, we will act on it. We will identify the risks. We will mitigate those risks and, and put in place systems that will protect people and the workforce. Do, do we have a learning culture? Meaning, what do we learn from it now? We, it was reported. We put in place corrective actions. What did we learn? And how can we share that learning? Next becomes that just culture that is a blame-free or blame-worthy culture. Part of that also is what we do next when, when something happens inside of a system. And, and part of that, to your point, is are we encouraging as leaders and organizations, and I mean from the board to the C-suite down, are you saying, please talk with us, please team with us, please partner with us and communicate to us? That's what we call establishing a system of transparency. So you have to have that transparent culture that is psychologically safe. If you look at the work of Amy Edmondson in Boston, she talks a lot about just having a psychologically safe environment where when things are brought to you, uh, you begin to work on not just those low-level corrective actions, because what happens in many organizations is they say, okay, we can fix this with more training and more education. Those are what we call weak corrective actions. We need to do things uh, as leaders to say, we want to put in place forcing functions, redundancies, making sure that we're doing everything we can so that when people are put in these high pressure, high volume environments, that we wanna make it easy for them to do what is right and make it difficult to do what is wrong. So then you put in place more intermediate and strong corrective actions. Now, pause for a second to say, not too often leaders will say, uh, don't bring me any bad news, just bring me good news. Uh, and that's what organizations will do then. Or they'll say, don't we have a policy for that? If not, let's write another policy. 
The other one is this over-reliance on technology, uh, which means that in many places, you would think when, when I talk to healthcare professionals that the electronic health record is a human being, that it can make moral decisions. It cannot. So, so this over-reliance on technology becomes a problem. So when you move then from establishing a culture of safety where no matter who you are, you're going to be held accountable for what you do, what you don't do, and, and your behaviors, uh, then you say we need to align all of this uh, in, a, in a system where we have continuous process improvement, no matter what it is. Uh, the Joint Commission calls it robust process improvement. ISHI calls it model for improvement. ThetaCare uses 8.3. Others call it DMAIC, define, measure, analyze, improve, uh, and, and control. Whatever your approach is, those are tools and methods. So have tools and methods that you put in place for continuous improvement. And then you establish a closed loop system and, and, and feedback in what you've learned. And, and that's a, a longstanding uh, model that comes from the, what's called a Durant uh, triad. So you be, continue to learn and demonstrate what you've learned to make the system safer for the workforce and for the people and the populations that you serve. So leadership, cultural safety, continuous process improvement should all be strategically aligned. It should be operationally robust and it should be tactically impactful. Well, Ron, your comments on leadership and the importance of creating a culture of safety really resonates with me. I mean, I remember being at a national ACHE meeting years ago, and they were talking about how they changed the mission statement for the organization to include patient safety. And I remember the ACHE president at the time saying, you know, it's regretful that, you know, we're making this change a decade after the two eras human report came out. I mean, this has been a longstanding problem. And, 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 I, and I can't help but think about how we're now at that moment with health equity as well. I mean, for patients of color, the unequal medical care and quality of the diagnosis received isn't just due to location, education, or income. It's also, you know, due to health professionals' cognitive biases, along with decades of clinical studies that examined only white male bodies and a lack of understanding about social determinants of biological illness. And the causes of poor quality diagnosis for people of color are multifactorial, and it's not just related to explicit or implicit bias, however. I mean, it's lack of trust, missing data, reduced data at the point of care, and other contributing factors. And although in health inequities within communities of color have persisted for hundreds of years, many are now, as I said, just waking up to the problem. And I mean, there's this elevated sense of awareness of inequities in our country right now due to the exacerbated health outcomes triggered by COVID-19 and the pre-existing disparities that have been magnified under the microscope of the pandemic. And if one studies history, you can easily find pre-existing health inequities that took form long before COVID. I mean, it's widely accepted that the first kidnapped Africans to reach European colonies in the Americas for the purposes of slavery in 1619, I mean, was, you know, black health was ignored then in the country's very beginning and health disparities persisted for 400 plus years. And the very foundation of the transatlantic slave trade is 
false medical theories of black inferiority, physical differences between blacks and whites, and the disparities. We'll continue to see uh, declarations of racism as a public health crisis unless we fully address these problems. So I wanted to ask you if you could explain the origins of health disparities going back to the end of slavery and how that converges with the diagnostic process and how has history manifested into some of these systemic inequities now that we observe in communities of color? And and are you optimistic that COVID-19 is going to be an inflection point now to overcome institutional racism that devalues and dehumanizes black and brown people? Hmm. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll walk through, through that. And I think it's important to always begin with what I would describe as, as the operational definitions. So if I, and I talk more now about health inequity than health equity. And when I, when I talk about health inequity, then uh, the definition I use comes from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement and the work I do there with them on their pursuing, pursuing equity work. Uh, health inequity, that, that is a difference in health outcomes that are three things, systematic, avoidable, and, and something you mentioned, unjust. So we go back to what we, we, we started again about this then, uh, systematic and unjust and, and, and avoidable. Those are key words. So if, if we use that definition, then health inequity, health inequity becomes an unsafe condition. Health inequity becomes a, a defect and a variation in a system. The result is people get hurt. So, so to your point, when we get to break down uh, a, a sentinel event again. What are the things we, we began to think about? I'd say inequity is an unsafe condition that impacts people in the community. The root cause we get into later, things you mentioned, structural institutional racism, stereotype bias, implicit bias, workforce capacity, resource allocation, and, and so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion activities. So this is what I say about COVID. The, the canary in the coal mine was already about dead before COVID hit. The data already said that we had a, a system that had put black and brown people at risk for, for premature death. It already existed. Or you could be rural and white and poor and, you, and the canary was already on life support. So what are those conditions then inside of a system that were designed that way? To your point, it shows social drivers of health. And, and, and at first I'll start with history and if we go back in history, then I will say that slaves were the quintessential essential worker, and and, and I talked about this on a on a, a presentation about a year ago, and it just so happened that one of the speakers was a lieutenant governor in Minnesota who um, is a First Nations woman, and, and when I talked about 1619, she said it started before 1619. It actually did here here in what we now know as the continental U.S. It started when the Spanish went to. Uh, the Caribbean and what happened to a population of people who were vanished by Spanish invaders. It led up to slavery from 1619 to 1865, to your point, when Black people and brown people were, were devalued and dehumanized, uh, became the focus of experimentation and, and algorithms we'll get into later that people still practice medicines by. So what happened then? That history says that what happened where structures of racism were put in place between 1619 and 1865 to maintain white supremacy. That led to the post-emancipation structures that were put in place to maintain white privilege. That gave away to, to the Jim Crow era, to redlining, 
to mass incarceration, the concentrated poverty that leads to what we now call the social drivers of health. And, and I hardly use that term anymore. I say it's the stuff that's killing black and brown people in this country, those social drivers that you mentioned and, and, and what's been called weathering. It's just the day-to-day -day discrimination, the day-to-day -day racism that, that people in certain populations and communities, marginalized and under-resourced have to deal with on a daily basis, the adverse childhood experiences that, that give way to chronic diseases in later years. These include pervasive residential segregations I've talked about, the, the manifestation of redlining for people of color and people who are disadvantaged. That includes lack of access to fresh food, alcohol, tobacco, junk food. If we look at one area that I say has improved and we have a lot of work to do, it is eliminating childhood poverty. Uh, so we talked about food insecurity, low quality health care, people who live in what have been called sacrifice zones. So there you see the impact of environmental racism and poor education support. A few years back when I was uh, in, in Cook County, I had a chance to meet with, with uh, an Obama appointee, ex-Obama appointee who worked in the um, FDA. And he had looked at data just in Cook County. And it turns out that the day of the week before COVID, before COVID, that had the highest public school attendance was Monday. It was Monday because that was the day when kids could come back to school and get a good meal because they'd been hungry for the whole weekend. So, so then you see that, that how history progressed. So I say to people, I would be shocked that anybody is shocked of what happened in COVID. There is no shock for me. I practiced medicine for 25 years in St. Louis and here in Alabama. We saw it. We knew it. We knew the mortality rates. We knew the infant mortality rates. We knew the maternal mortality rates. We, we began to ask about what you talked about is what then are the root causes? And I put, them, I put them out there just now. And we'll talk about some of these later. We've already talked about leadership, racism, different kinds of bias, implicit and explicit bias, stereotype bias. And, and something you mentioned is the what's been called the trust decay. Uh, the, 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 the collapse of the trust triangle, which means, kind to your point, a lack of empathy, a lack of practicing assiduous evidence-based medicine for all people and using that same logic and judgment in practice for all people. And then the next is, are you truly authentic in your efforts? Are you genuine in your efforts? And, and that's the challenge I have with DEI right now. Uh, it, it's, it's not enough to run up some balloons and banners and put someone in charge, most often a black or brown person as the head of DEI who are under-resourced, under-supported and asked to get results in a few months for something that started uh, over 450 years ago. So, so trying to get at those root causes that the data told us pre-COVID existed. And, 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 and I, again, I call it all sudden events that continue to do uh, harm to people. Well, Ron, you know, you, you spoke about how this is pre-existing before COVID, but I, I'm hopeful that COVID will have some type of catalytic effect on the movement to health equity. But there's also this cultural revolution in our society right now for civil rights and social justice, and it's been awakened in the collective consciousness of all Americans following the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others who have experienced the lethality of racism in recent years for all to see. And any responsible attempt to define disease must account for 
the phenomenon's complexity, which includes aspects of our society that reside outside of the immediate healthcare system. I mean, simply put, I mean, disease is a deeply social process and its distribution lays bare society structures of wealth and power and the responses it elicits illuminate strongly held values and value-based care. We often attempt to tackle the unjust differences in healthcare and public health services, employment, education, housing, food security. However, the criminal justice system continues to oppress people of color, leading to unfair treatment and incarceration, which in turn creates the adverse social determinants of health that we're all attempting to solve for in the public health and healthcare arenas. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how is taking action to reduce health inequities a matter of social justice? I mean, since aggressive policing is negatively affecting the health of those exposed to it, what can we do as a society to demand for structural changes in the roles of police institutions and the role that they play in monitoring deviance? Yeah, so, so yeah, I, I honestly wish that was um, an easy answer to that question, that there is not. But I, I strongly believe that there will be as, as we progress through this, as many states and localities, for the most part, non-red states, began to look at over-policing uh, and how it's, how it's been done. You know, I'm, I'm 68 years old, okay? I, I had a policeman in Birmingham, Alabama hold a gun to my head when I was 21. Uh, and all I was trying to do is get to work at UPS in the morning. Uh, and at that time, Birmingham, Alabama, back then, uh, was led the nation and a number of young black men being killed by police for a mid-sized city. So again, not a new problem. It's been with me my entire life and my, the life of, of you know, my parents and grandparents, the over-policing that has always taken place. And that's why history is important. So when I talked about the history, when we came out of, of emancipation, there was something called the retribution, followed with something called peonage. And, and that's to me is where a lot of this started. I, we knew about highway patrols when I grew up in rural Alabama. And I remember my, my grandmother saying, don't be out late at night because what they call the patty roll will get you. And for a long time, I didn't know what they meant. Those were the slave patrols, right? So, so even then, the patty roll that gets you if you're out late at night. People were aware of this. So you're right. It came to this point where Breonna Taylor and George Floyd to, to further unveil something that was already, we knew, taking place that led to what's called the new Jim Crow. The startling statistic from that book that says there are more black men uh, that are incarcerated or under control of the legal system now than there was in slavery in 1863. Think about that for a second. Right? And if you look at the number of black people in the state of Alabama who are incarcerated or under control of the, the system, it, Alabama alone would be the eighth, number eight in the world on the number of people incarcerated. And back to your point, if, if these are people that are locked out of the system once they come out of being incarcerated, you can't, you can't get food subsidies, you can't vote, you, you can't live in subsidized housing, uh, you have to check the box. Those are all social drivers of health that put people at high social risk, which is where we're headed with this. And, and part of that has to be how we provide personal and interpersonal safety. And that language is already in the CMS uh, metrics that we'll talk about maybe later. But that's part of health, right? That there is that I can go out and, and feel safe. And, and here I am 
uh, physician, uh, all the stuff I've done in healthcare and patient safety, even here, here now in Alabama, because of having a gun held to my head when I was 21, simply trying to get to work. If I meet a police car, and I wrote an essay about it some years ago, I never published, it's called Looking in the Review Mirror. So if I meet a police car going the other direction or one pulls up behind me, I'm constantly looking in the rearview mirror. That is what's called an adverse childhood experience that continues to impact me. That's part of what we call weathering that can impact a person's health. And, and over-policing is a root cause for some of this. And, and we carry that into the healthcare systems. And I'll, another brief story, you know, from the time I was at the, at the Joint Commission, that there was a, a resident physician who pulled a policeman off of a patient. The, 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 the policeman was beating a patient. Patients in the ED were, were saying that the, the man didn't do anything wrong. A resident physician pulled the police off of this person. That healthcare system had a police station, a satellite station in, the, in that hospital, in the hospital, in the hospital. So after it happened, the resident physician, who happened to have been an African-American Black physician trainee, went on vacation. Turns out when he, when he was gonna come back from vacation, he was gonna be arrested for obstructing a police officer from doing his or her job, right? So this whole idea about, about you know, restructuring, and I'm not one that's gonna go out and say defund the police. No, we don't need to defund the police. We need to make sure that the police are part of the community and are truly there to, as they all say, protect and serve. They are there to protect and serve. And, and that's what I want from my, my grandson. I saw something just this week where a young guy is selling an item that you can hang outside of your car window if you're black and pull over with all the necessary papers in there so you can sit there and hold your hand on the steering wheel and the policeman can just pull that thing off of the window and, and check everything out. That's where we're at. That's no way to grow up with, with that kind of uh, thought process. And, and I was taught that in Birmingham. Keep your hands at, at on the steering wheel at 10 and 2 Look straight ahead. Don't make any sudden moves. That was in 1976. And you look at the data and you see that black men getting killed or shot by police is a leading cause of death in this country. So we have to address all of these social drivers, including over-policing. Well, Ron, it's, it's so powerful to hear that. And I can't even imagine that lived experience but i but i do understand it in as, as a systemic issue and you know you mentioned earlier also that there's this long standing history of distrust in the african american community with the healthcare system i mean the medical establishment has a, a long history of mistreating black americans from you know gruesome experiments on enslaved people to you know, forced sterilizations of black women and the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study that withheld treatment from hundreds of black men for decades to let doctors track the course of the disease. And it's not surprising that just 42% of black Americans said in late 2020 that they'd even be willing to take a COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, medical mistrust is not just related to past legacies of mistreatment, but it also stems from people's contemporary experiences, as you described, of discrimination in healthcare, outside of healthcare, and then you know just the inequities that we see in the system with access to health insurance, 
access to healthcare facilities, institutional practices that make it more difficult for Black Americans to obtain care. So what do you think it will take for African-American communities en masse to begin trusting the healthcare system? I mean, even if healthcare begins to do right by Black Americans in addressing health inequities, is it possible to overcome the intergenerational mistrust and trauma that's persisted for hundreds of years since the end of slavery? Yeah, I absolutely think it's possible, and, and I'm optimistic about it, and I'll, I'll uh, tell you why in a second, but I think it's important also to understand that there has been, because we, we want to be historic, not ahistoric, there has been a historic erosion of trust, and you hit on most of it, in the United States health system for Black people, brown people, and white people. But let's go with, with non-white people. It's again started with the 1600s when it was pretty much you will obey me, right? It was obedience, blind obedience. I know what's best for you, and all of the the medical experimentation, eugenics, everything that took place, the the birth control experiments that took place in Puerto Rico, the story of Henrietta Lacks. If you look at at uh, W. B. Du Bois's work uh, called the Philadelphia Negro, that was published in guess when 1899. And he and he looked at statistically the differences in outcomes for, for black people in Philadelphia. And he had this remarkable term. He said what it demonstrates is a peculiar indifference. And some of that peculiar indifference still exists, but more tragically, in, in medical training, it's taught. So 1800s, obedience, 1900s, uh, we started talking about personalized care, person-centered care, and trusting. Now and I'll say for African-American black people, and I'll, I'll uh, anchor this in the story now, it's like, you got to show me you care about me. That's what I mean by authenticity. That's what I mean by empathy. Show me compassion. Show me respect. Uh, show me that you care for me. Show it to me. And if you do that, I will trust you. Well, last summer here in Alabama, my son took his, my grandson to a pediatric, pediatrician's office here in Alabama, he and his partner. And it just so happens his partner is an RN here in Alabama, black RN. Um, and he called me from the pediatrician's office. And, and he said that the pediatrician just said something to me and I don't, I don't understand it. And I don't trust it. It turns out that the child had a, what's called a lip tie. You know, he was having trouble nursing. So they were concerned about it. So they took him in. The pediatrician said he had a lip tie, which as an internist, I never heard of. I looked it up. And I said, okay, what happened? He said that the pediatrician said to him, there's nothing here to worry about. My recommendation is just let him fall. Let him fall. And the trauma from the fall will most likely tear it loose and he'll be fine, right? Let him fall. My son said, I, I can't trust that. So they took the child to a, a dental office and they did a simple procedure and, and the problem was solved. That's what he said, let him fall. So trust, uh, and, and when, when you talk about trust, what are some of the things that drive it? The mistrust is, is, is physicians who don't spend enough time with people, who don't listen, who are absent, who don't show compassion, who are not empathetic, who don't show respect. And, and then what they then do is label people as non-compliant or non-adherent. So part of the solution, quite bluntly, you got to put more black and brown people in medical school. I'll be more specific. There needs to be more African-American physicians. There needs to be more African-American black male physicians. And, and that trust level will begin to increase. 
And, and, and I know this from my 25 years of practice, when people would come in and say, Dr. XYZ, most often a white physician, because there are not more black male physicians now also than there was in 1899. Uh, and people come and say, Dr. Y, this is what I was told to do. This is the medicine I was told to take. I'm not going to do it unless I talk to you because I trust you, right? And I know if you tell me, I'm, they're not experimenting on me. So yes, those echoes of Tuskegee and, and, and all the other experimentation that has taken place uh, and continue to take place uh, through the last century, uh, including the, the skin testing that was done by pharmaceutical com companies on prisons in Pennsylvania. So there's a rich history that, that gives people a reason to not trust. There's a rich history of people who are incarcerated and get substandard care and not trusting when they leave being incarcerated. So all of that, all of that puts people at risk and leads to, again, pre preventable health, a, a harm, injury, and preventable death. Or as my friend Don Burke said to me once um, 10 years ago, he said, Ron, in the United States, race is an independent risk factor for death. And the data bears that out. So it can be solved. We, we need to have more black and brown people practicing medicine, pharmacy, nursing, nurse practitioners, physician's assistant, physicians, all of it needs to happen. Social, social workers, especially mental health workers, especially having black men as, as mental health professionals. All of, so that needs, that needs to be a transformation. The same applies for people who have disabilities. The same applies for people who identify as LGBTQ plus. All of this needs to, need to change, it needs to transform. And, and more people that look and, and come from populations and cultures that they wanna serve needs to take place at the medical school and at the training level. Why you think it is that a few years back, that study that was done in Virginia where students and residents believe that black people didn't need as much pain medicine because the skin was thicker, right? That came out of the 1800s and, and all the other algorithms out of the 1800s around pulse oximetry, checking the amount of oxygen in your blood, pulmonary function tests, so many things that, that have, have persisted in so-called modern medicine that grew out of race-based medicine centuries ago that still exist and they, they need to be abolished. And, and they show up in multiple places in medicine. They show up in cardiology around heart failure. They show up in the people who have uh, renal problems and who gets sent for, for kidney transplants and not. It shows up in prostate cancer when more black men have te testicular surgery to remove the testicles than other kinds of prostate treatment. It shows up in the race of C-section. So you go down every, every uh, specialty in medicine and you see this race-based corrections that have existed for, for centuries and decades that must be eliminated. Ron, these disparities absolutely must be eliminated. And I, I appreciate your comments. And I agree with the solution of having culturally competent care models where the providers uh, reflect the attributes, the ethnicity, the characteristics of the population that's being served. I mean, you have to share in that lived experience with your patients to understand where they're coming from and to best treat them. And so another thing that I think has potential that I wanted to ask you about 
is uh, addressing health disparities through telehealth. You know, this concept of teleequity and its impact on patient care and diagnostic accuracy, this has been around for decades, but COVID-19 really transformed telehealth usage overnight. I mean, the utility of telehealth became increasingly more utilized during the pandemic and and also the, the challenges of serving the needs of vulnerable and minoritized populations. I mean, telemedicine can do a lot in terms of alleviating the relative misdistribution of providers and bring healthcare to rural areas of the country and areas that are less resourced. And the ability of virtual care to address inequities and in access was readily, I thought, you know, demonstrated during the pandemic. I mean, you have the ubiquitous smartphone, the capability of video interactions that is a lifeline for underserved populations. But but then you see that there's this this digital divide in underserved communities. I mean, there's 14 million homes in urban settings and 4 million homes in rural communities that lack broadband access. And 75% of those households are people of color. I just think that, you know, there's an opportunity here uh, for benefits, but then still we're seeing how pervasive inequities are and in, in limiting scalability and impact of uh, telehealth deployment. And the benefits of telemedicine, I, I know, could foreseeably address health inequities and provider shortages, as I said, but it does seem like we have a long way to go to really see the full potential in healthcare. So, uh, Ron, can you describe the potential for virtual care and addressing health disparities and diagnostic errors, and then what will be necessary to permanently establish telehealth in a hybrid care delivery system that includes in-person and virtual care? Sure. So, so thank you for the question. And over the last year, I worked uh, as a co-chair with a group called the American Telemedicine Association, uh, and we put together a framework uh, because the belief is that when when telehealth uh, is utilized appropriately, that it can help eliminate disparities and inequities. So we put together a framework that we, we worked on for most of the last summer into the fall. And we started by saying connectivity is some of what you're talking about is the easiest part of it, right? So, so we said we got to start at the base and we put together this pyramid. What is at the base? If we're going to make telehealth an intervention that's going to improve healthcare outcomes for all people. First, again, we talked about, we have to understand history. We need to understand cultures of people that will use and utilize uh, telehealth and telemedicine services, whether that's uh, video, whether that's audio. Again, at the base of that pyramid we designed is trust. The, the, the next block at that pyramid is how to become anti-racist. And we'll come back to that when we hopefully have time to talk about what CMS is doing. So structural anti-racism, begin there as you build this framework, this, this pyramid to achieve telehealth equity. Next is inclusiveness. Inclusiveness, we talked a lot about not designing this without the community, right? So go to the community and say, we're trying to design this in a way that's gonna benefit you. Uh, knowing the community is important. Again, where leadership comes in. And all too often it's unfortunate that a lot of leaders don't even know the community that they say they serve. So thinking about elderly people, people who are disabled, people who don't have homes to live in, how will you reach those populations? People who live in, in tent cities in some places in the country. So, so how do you get their voice into the design uh, of uh, a telehealth system? Next, something you mentioned, but I'll, I'll reframe it. 
uh, understanding structural competency. And, and when you mentioned it, when you talked about power structures, so structural competency and structural humility needs to be built into telemedicine the way it's built into in-person care. So that means then that as a competency, this goes beyond cultural competency, that in telemedicine, a, a, a deep understanding that you're trying to close that power gap and a deep understanding that when I come in in person or by telemedicine, I'm bringing all the history with me that I should just share with you today, that there needs to be an appreciation for my political, for my economic, for my social life, for my spiritual life, and, and close that gap and then learn from it, reflect on it over time that you say debrief, how did this go? What can we improve? How do we do this better? How does it incorporate into a training curriculum? To your point again, how to build both health literacy and digital literacy on, a, on an equal par with each other. So, so, so as we move up that pyramid, then the next level is, is it affordable? So uh, it's not enough to say we have telehealth um, available if it's not affordable. So the payment plans have already begun to work on this, but having, having payment uh, reform and payment plans uh, that will allow for telemedicine services uh, to be more affordable uh, and, and to continually look at is the telehealth delivery system doing good or is it making matters worse? Uh, and then the last part is bandwidth and connectivity and, and all of those things. Uh, so, so as we think about it, it's the same, in, in a way, the same structures as an in-person visit that we need to start to build in if we're going to have a sustainable uh, telemedicine, telehealth system. Ron, we've been talking about the deep introspection that's taking place right now that routine medical practice uh, treats black and brown patients differently than white patients. And, you know, as, as you said, it's been going on for hundreds of years. Um, one area of, of focus in health equity, too, is this growing concern around AI, machine learning, data science, and the risk of automation that reinforces existing biases through the use of algorithms. And researchers and physicians have warned that algorithms that are used to determine, for example, who gets uh, kidney patients or heart surgeries or breast cancer often display racial bias. And there's problems that with that that lead to detrimental care uh, and in some cases can jeopardize the health of millions of people. I mean, a recent study uh, that I read, it showed that an algorithm that was being used to identify uh, patients that were eligible for care management programs reduced the number of black patients identified for extra care by more than a half. That particular algorithm detected patient risk by assessing the amount of healthcare dollars spent on the patient and current health disparities and equities are skewing those risk assessments to favor white patients who are in many cases uh, much healthier. And in that particular example, researchers showed that just removing the algorithmic bias would result in a 29% increase in black patients receiving additional services. And then there's just countless other examples, but I just wanted to ask you, Ron, you know, how do we go about developing predictive AI and population health that minimizes algorithmic bias and ensures that the model is fair across all socioeconomic demographics and social classes. Yeah, so the so the the paper that I always go back to also is a New York Journal paper that was published, uh, I think last year or before, and, and it's called Hidden in Plain Sight, and, and, and reconsidering the use of what's been called race correction and clinical algorithms. And CMS has already advised 
several institutions, organizations around the US to go back and revisit all of those clinical algorithms that we know so much about. And this article so nicely lists all of them just a couple of years ago. And so we, the first step is to say, we need to end this. And, and unfortunately, there are a lot of entities invested in these things, but we need to end them. Any race-based correction and medicine that now finds itself into clinical algorithms, quite frankly, should be abolished and treat people as human beings. It's some of what we've already been talking about. Uh, and when we do that, then design and co-design and co-partner with people that are being served. It cannot be done by engineers somewhere in a room designing algorithms uh, that, you know, I use the term that the military uses, these over-the-horizon decisions. Uh, and that's what the military does, an over-the-horizon decision based on, a, on a, some type of algorithm. And as I said earlier, to take away over-dependence on a clinical algorithm to make a clinical decision, because what you have to begin to be able to speak to is a clinical algorithm, AI, as far as I know, cannot make a moral decision. It's making a decision based on algorithms. So as they are designed, uh, we need to know who is, as the, they say in the play Hamilton, who's in the room where they're being designed and where are those voices coming from? You cannot leave the community out of it. And there are several entities around the country right now that are community-based organizations, faith-based organizations that, that are asking to be involved when these algorithms are being designed and, and they're being tested. So I think that's where it starts with, with everything we're doing right now. Don't do something to a population or community without involving the population of, uh, uh, or that community. Because now you're, you're making moral judgments for someone and you don't understand the culture. Back to what we talked about structural communists, understand those cultures. That's gotta be a part of this. That's gotta be a part of the transformation to, to know the community, to know the demographics of the community. Begin to use stratified data to look for your opportunities and, and, and put that means inside of a clinical algorithm. We cannot put one population uh, that lives in a high income, mostly white neighborhood somewhere uh, to a low income uh, population that's mostly black or brown somewhere and put them on equal par inside of a clinical algorithm. We got to make sure, and that's what CMS is kind of doing now with their approach to payment, it is putting together a social risk picture. And, and clinical algorithms will have to do that, not based on race, to your point. I think that was maybe the science article you were talking about got, drew so much criticism. So the, those are the approaches that need to be taken, and, and there needs to be continuous monitoring and surveillance of these systems, uh, looking primarily at the outcomes uh, of, of these decisions and, and how the algorithms is going to help a clinician sitting in the room with a person when all that data begins to come in to make the most appropriate decision back to where we started so that you decrease the opportunity for some type of delay in diagnosis or a misdiagnosis. Well, Ron, you mentioned the work that CMS is doing now towards health equity and in particular value-based care and the payment models associated with that movement. They're evolving right now to include health equity and social justice as a focal point. I mean, the industry movement to value-based care, I mean, it's been around for two decades to improve quality and lower costs, but the impact on racial health disparities has been limited but now there's this new program, the ACO REACH model, in, uh, that CMS is planning to embed health equity 
in that uh, particular payment model and then cascade that to all the different alternative payment models with more focus on improving health outcomes and underserved populations. The re-engineering of these payment models to include health equity as a financial measure for success, I mean, it's going to require all these organizations to conduct disparity impact assessments and health equity reports to monitor whether institution-level policies proactively reduce health disparities. Another example might be to have some sort of socio-demographic-based risk adjustment that takes into account race and poverty. So, Ron, what are your thoughts on how value-based care is being reoriented around racial and health justice? Yeah, so it, it is being reoriented, and I'll just start with the, with the, um, the basics of value-based purchasing. And if you look at the, at the uh, fiscal year 2024, hospital value-based purchasing program. There are four domains, clinical outcomes, person and community engagement, patient safety, and efficiency and cost reduction. So under the value-based purchasing program, the MIPS and MACRA programs, if you take, uh, for, for instance, let's just go with clinical outcomes. Um, clinical outcomes, one of the crudest metrics possible, I think, is a risk-adjusted mortality rate uh, or complication rates from hip and knee surgery. If you take those outcomes and stratify them by race, ethnicity, and language. That's the minimum place to start. Uh, and you'll see that inside the CMS program and now the Joint Commission Accreditation Program. Stratify the data by race, ethnicity, and language. Uh, look at, at person and community engagement. These are what's called the CAPS data. So if you look at the CAPS uh, survey dimensions, it talks about communication with nurses, communication with doctors, responsiveness of the hospital staff, communication by medication, hospital cleanliness and quietness, discharge and care transition information, and overall hospital rating. If you begin to take that, that HCAPS data, the CAPS data, stratify it, read through the narrative, what, the, what people are saying, not the drop down, and, and look for what that real story is and begin to move that into your, your measurement program, your performance measurement program or roadmap, and you begin to prioritize where the disparities exist in your data, begin to implement evidence-based interventions, invest in developing and using health equity performance measures, and then incentivize those systems that are, that are doing this work. And when you go to the, and I commented on this in the comment period for the CMS health equity focused measures, the first one goes back to what we talked about, leadership commitment. There will be a huge, huge focus by CMS and the Joint Commission, other creditors on leadership engagement. You must have an equity strategic plan. You must have an equity data collection and data analysis plan. You, back to where we started, you must have a commitment to a, a health equity quality improvement plan. To your point, uh, setting up a, a social risk assessment approach, the, the so-called drivers of health, where you screen for social needs, what we talked about earlier, food insecurity, housing instability, transportation needs, utilities difficulties, something we also talked about previously uh, on the podcast, interpersonal safety. There's a structural measure that says any hospital participating in the hospital inpatient quality reporting program are now required to annually complete a maternal morbidity structural measure question. It's a binary question. Does your hospital or health system participate in a statewide or national perinatal quality improvement collaborative program that is aimed at improving maternal outcomes during inpatient labor, 
during delivery and postpartum and has been and has implemented patient safety practices or bundles related to maternal mortality to address complications that are included but not limited to uh, hemorrhage, hypertension, and sepsis. And they're binary questions, yes or no. And, and, and then whatever happens next in terms of payment will go back to how you answer these questions. Some of those drivers could be adopting these drivers of health that are under consideration, whether it be state, private uh, plans, using your data, as we talked about earlier, to focus on disparities, outcome, and what you talked about earlier, cost, and then how you begin to leverage that data uh, to, to lead to or encourage or spur investments in community capacity now to improve the health of the community. So, so when I say that one, that's become really important. Uh, that means that systems, particularly nonprofit systems, need to allocate resources once these, these high-risk factors uh, have high-risk populations have been identified, begin to allocate those community dollars to where they are most needed, not where they are most wanted. Well, already, what's happened? Uh, many of the big systems, big organizations, I won't call anybody's name, they know who they are, have already pushed back on CMS saying, it's too big, it's too much, it's too fast. Give us some more time. We need to work on this a bit more. No, you don't. You've had 400 years to work on it. So, so we come to this point. Part of this from CMS is you also must have an anti-racism plan. That's led now to eight states suing CMS uh, over the requirement that you must have uh, uh, anti-racism plan. The Joint Commission goes back to leadership. Their, their standards uh, will go in effect for Joint Commission survey in January. I, I heavily contributed to the Joint Commission standards. Where does it start? If you look at the Joint Commission standards, it says you must have leadership activities to reduce healthcare disparities. You must begin uh, to assess patients' health-related social needs and provide information for community resources and support services. So it follows along with everything that, that CMS has already described. You must have an action plan. This is from the Joint Commission. You must have an action plan now to reduce healthcare disparities in your population. So some examples of that would be, at a minimum, a structural type measure, collect real data, race, ethnic, and language data, collecting sexual orientation, and gender identity data, collecting drivers of health data, uh, knowing your screening rates, who screens positive, meaning at high risk, are you providing navigation services for the population that you say you serve? Are you providing this, the resources, which is approximate outcome measure? Are you providing the resources for the people who, who need access to your driver of health resources? And then are you collecting that data that, to demonstrate the percent of people who, who experienced uh, whatever type of insecurity you have identified in your system. So that means what? A strategy, right? To come to your point. The strategy must be that you adopt equity measures. You report them for, for at-risk people. You monitor those programs. Uh, you adjust on a case-by-case -case basis so that you're, you're not putting uh, low social risk people in with high social risk populations. You do that risk assessment and you reward the effort. Use existing quality improvement programs back to where we started and, and invest in research to see how we can begin to bring down the cost of care for people or at least make the, the cost of care more effective and more efficient. So there are the things that people need to start to think about and build into what's been called a, you know, a, a value-based care and health equity program that creates community 
uh, interventions that pays for the performance on equity, that you redesign your community impact investments all with the, with the purpose of achieving health equity. Well, Ron, I would like to ask you about the investment that's needed to collect this data and then put it into action in the clinical domain. I mean, there's irrefutable facts that we've talked about, about diagnostic errors, but it's disheartening to see how comparatively less attention it receives, despite the fact that landmark patient safety studies have consistently found it so common. I mean, we've seen over the last decade in the patient safety movement, you know, research that's chiefly addressed around quantifiable problems such as medication errors and hospital-acquired infections, post-surgical complications. However, a Harvard Medical Practice study said that diagnostic errors account for 17% of preventable errors in hospitalized patients, and a systematic review of autopsy studies covering four decades found that 9% of patients experienced a major diagnostic error that went undetected while the patient was alive, yet federal investment and research to understand the multifactorial causes of diagnostic error and the solutions that improve diagnostics total only a few million dollars. And consequently, technologies underdeveloped and solutions haven't yet been tested in the clinical environment. So can you explain maybe some of the research that's underway and then the work that still needs to be done to implement the necessary system solutions to achieve the necessary changes? Yeah, the research is needed. (laughs) Let's start there, right? that there is a a dearth of research, but mountains of data that say that there's a problem. So the research itself needs to be rethought. It frustrates me when you see some research on equity or disparity and and the last line in the research paper goes like this. We need further research to better understand this. I say, no, you don't. Uh, You need to go back and address what are the root causes in your system. So if we go to the data, and this is again from the Urban Institute study from a little over a year ago, and they just looked at the existing data uh, comparing black and white patients. There was for, for black patients to white patients, more hemorrhage after surgery, more dialysis after surgery, more respiratory failure after surgery, uh, more blood clots after surgery, more sepsis, uh, more wound dehiscence when the wound opens up after surgery, and more accidental organ punctures or lacerations for black, all of those categories happens more to black people than white people. So, so if, if, if you see that kind of flashing red light, uh, you don't need more research on that, right? You need to go in and start, as I said before, asking those why questions. Why is this happening here? Here's a, here's a, a provocative question that leaders need to ask. How is racism operating here? And how do we begin to, to stop it? Start right there based on that data. You can do that. Any organization can begin to do that. It goes back to leadership that is bold enough to take the stand on it and say, we're going to do something about this. We're going to address racism in the system. We're going to address the different forms of bias in the system that leads to misdiagnosis, delays in diagnosis. And guess what? It's costing all of us. This costs all of us. As my good friend Kamar Jones says, it takes energy out of the entire system. Uh, So we're spending over $3 billion a year on equity and disparities. If diagnostic error is the third leading cause of preventable death, what are the costs? What are the human toll? What's the human cost of that? And that should get any leader's attention. And I will boldly say, if that doesn't get a leader's attention at this moment in history, then those are people that need to find another job because you're doing more harm than good to try to sustain a system 
that that is designed and you're contributing to the design of a system that's creating these outcomes that we all know exist. We knew existed before COVID. So begin to understand what, what happens. Do you have language services, for instance? Do you have the systems in place to address the vulnerable people in your population and, and invest in them? Uh, and, and again, when we say that, what people hear and what, what scares people is, are you talking about redistribution? No. The, the effort in equity is not to make one population worse, to make another population better. That's the system we have now that has failed, right? No, we're not talking about taking away and uh, diminishing the health of, of uh, one population while you improve the health of another. No. And that's why I don't use the term, the rising tide lifts all boats. No, it doesn't. You know, if you're sitting up in a big old luxury liner uh, and I'm sitting in a canoe, right? When the, when the tide goes up, I'm still in a canoe and you're still in a luxury liner. So, so we need to think about this very differently uh, and not hurt anyone by trying to make things better for all people. It's about all people. It's putting in place systems that, are, as we talked about earlier, that adjust, right? That, that, that show, that demonstrate that we care about the populations that we've identified. First, identify them that are at higher risk and then invest in those populations. And that's why it's so important, again, to look at where is your community investment money going? Follow the money. Is it going to where you know is needed in your town, a place where I practice medicine? I know for a fact that the higher income communities, neighborhoods, zip codes, were getting uh, more of that community money than lower income uh, working class neighborhoods in that same town. So leaders got to step back and boards have to step back and, and say, why? Well, we're to this point, uh, and I talk about this to say, because it's similar to when we went through the diagnosis-related group movement, DRGs, back when I was in training. Uh, it's unfortunate that healthcare delivery systems won't do this until they are forced to. So by regulation, accreditation, payment, and unfortunately, and fortunately, that's where we're at that if you're not gonna take it on yourself to commit to this, that's why CMS uses the language commitment. If you're not gonna take it on yourself to commit to this, then be prepared for not to get paid for it. Be prepared to not get paid for poor outcomes in, in populations that show some type of race or ethnicity or language difference. Pay, you're gonna pay for it or not get paid for delivering that kind of inequitable care. Well, Ron, this has really been a powerful conversation, and I thought we could conclude on a, a parting thought about the future. I mean, we, we've had great discussion around the issues of diagnostic error and its impact on health equity, and I know you're on the board of directors of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, and their vision for the future is one where there's a world where no patient is harmed by diagnostic error, and I was looking on your LinkedIn profile recently, and you posted a quote a few months ago from the Dalai Lama, and he said, it's true that in specific circumstances where you have the ability to alleviate the suffering of another person or to protect another person from suffering, there is in that sense an inequality, and one person has a capacity that the other person does not, but there is no such sense of inequality, no feeling of superiority in the actual mode and the compassion views the other sentient being 
that other being for whom I feel compassion is just like me. So I, I wanted to get your parting thoughts on, you know, how do you think compassion and community is going to drive this movement to better diagnosis, to improve health equity and patient safety? Yeah. So, so it's, it's crucial. And I will say again, I'm optimistic. And I'll tell you why in a minute, but it's crucial. So, so it's going to take some things. One is courage. And I'm, I'm pointing my finger back at leadership. It's going to take courage. And, and if you look at, and I share this with folks, if you look at the root definition of the word courage, it comes from corde. Corde is Latin for heart, right? So, so when people say to me, this is hard work, Ron, this is big work, it's, it's so big, I don't know if we can do it. I'm just one person in one organization. And I tell them, it's not hard work, it's hard work. This is hard work. And we need to commit to hard work. Hard work means that if you ask any healthcare provider in any discipline, why did you go into this field? Most of them will say to help people, right? So to help people means hard work. To help people means love work. Quality begins with you got to love people. You have to love the community. You got to love the people that work on the team with you in your organization. It, it begins and ends there with that kind of commitment, the hard work commitment. I go back to the story that I wrote about in the IHI white paper on achieving equity, Monka Tommy uh, here in Alabama who died. And I was with him the day before he died. And I found out about six years ago that, that my uncle Tommy who raised me as a father died from, from a failure to make a diagnosis. When, when I found out six years ago, just by happenstance, that the nurse that night knew that my uncle Tommy had a ruptured appendix and, and could not convince a surgeon in Selma, Alabama to come in to see him because he was black and poor and semi-literate. He was dead the next day, right? So what's my optimism with a story like that? Because Uncle Tom would never imagine me having this conversation with you. That's my optimism. My optimism is my, my great-grandparents who were slaves, who could have never imagined having these kinds of conversations and, and, and the United States reaching a point about whatever means that we began to have these conversations, that we began to talk about undoing racism, that we began to talk about implicit bias training, that we began to talk about understand me and my history, see me, right? Show me who you are and I will trust you. The days are gone when you can come into my house through your door. You cannot do that anymore. We couldn't have had those conversations. The conversations I'm having with you right now would have probably had me swinging from a tree in 1860 to begin to talk about these things. So that's my optimism. My optimism is when I look at whatever the generation is of my daughter who's 26, and I see in that, in that generation a willingness to change the world. And when I say that, uh, I say, we're going to change the world. And people react again, how can we change the world? And, and my answer is, again, similar. If you love people and, and you change that person's world by doing everything you can to not hurt them, to not insult them, to not disrespect them, to show them empathy, show them compassion, show them respect. You save that person's world that day. So you can do it. You can change the world. Put your heart into it. Put your soul into it. Commit to it. And, and it's only going to get better. I never thought we'd be here having these conversations even 10 years ago. Well, Ron, I, I'm just so inspired by your optimism and your leadership. 
I, I just can't thank you enough for joining us this week on the podcast. I know our industry, our listeners are going to be better for it. And it's just such an honor to be able to host you and be a part of this important conversation. Thank you so much.